Hi there, I'm Dave Anthony, and this is the Garage to Stadiums podcast. On each episode, we tell you the story of how one of our music legends rose from obscurity to fame, and play some of the songs that marked that journey. Today's show is about the career of ACDC with author Martin Popoff, who has written several books profiling bands, including ACDC. The band hails from Sydney, Australia, and has sold an estimated 200 million albums, which would be like if two out of every three Americans owned an ACDC record. The band's key figures from their origins in 1973 in Sydney have been the Australian brothers, rhythm guitarist Malcolm Young, and lead guitarist Angus Young. These small but mighty men, standing just over five feet tall, have perfected the simple, straight-ahead rock and roll sound of ACDC. Angus, in fact, has a further gimmick on stage, which is he dresses in the schoolboy in shorts that you may recall. This band seems to cut across various genres in terms of fans. Fans from punk, alternative, classic rock, and pop all seem to admire ACDC for its straightforward rock tunes like Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap, Shook Me All Night Long, Back in Black, Thunderstruck, and more. The band's songs have been sampled by the Beastie Boys and covered by bands like Guns N' Roses, Quiet Riot, The Offspring, Joan Jett, Twisted Sister, and even Shakira. The country group Big and Rich even covered the band's tune Shook Me All Night Long. If you don't believe ACDC's music is important, check out the study that shows, and I'm not kidding about this, the study shows that surgeons perform cleaner, faster cuts when listening to ACDC piped into operating rooms. Some notable fans of the band include Keith Richards, Eddie Van Halen, Ozzy Osbourne, Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, alternative country singer Ryan Adams, and many more. Here to talk about the band's journey from the garage to the stadiums and the tragedy that seems to constantly underpin this band is Martin Popoff. A little bit about Martin. Martin has unofficially written more record reviews than anybody in the history of music writing across all genres. That number incredibly currently stands at 7,900 reviews. Additionally, Martin has penned approximately 120 books on hard rock, heavy metal, classic rock, and punk. Martin is a sought-after researcher, having contributed to the 11-episode Metal Evolution and 10-episode Rock Icons both series for VH1. One of his most recent books, and the one we're going to talk about today, is ACDC at 50, a gorgeous coffee table book full of ACDC facts, concert photos, memorabilia, and album-by-album reviews. Welcome to Garage to Stadiums, Martin. Yes, thank you very much. Looking forward to this. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell us where Malcolm, Angus, the Young family, they're sort of the 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 nucleus of this band from the beginning where did they grow up what was their family life like was uh it was essentially poverty um you know they they had a large family uh they're in scotland and uh you know and i've i've even seen theories that said you know they were they were you know short guys short thin guys and stuff because of the pollution growing up in scotland and the water you know lead in the water and things like that right um so uh yeah, they they emigrate to Scotland. You know, they're they're young, um, but they love rock and roll. You know, they're raised on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Chuck Berry, the blues kind of thing. You just started doing the thing you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe de ville. A Cadillac rolling on an open road, nothing out to run my V8 Ford. 
So how did they come up with the ACDC name? Um, you know, the name comes from uh, on the AC adapter of their sister Margaret's sewing machine. It's at ACDC, and they thought that was a good name. So as the youngest of, uh, I believe it was eight children, Angus gets involved in the band. And I've read that Angus had a variety of different personas on stage before he settles on the schoolboy uniform look. How did that schoolboy uniform look come about? Yeah, so that was an idea of Margaret's. I mean, he literally did wear a schoolboy uniform and he was a schoolboy. And Margaret's kind of concept was, oh, well, isn't this kind of cool, this idea of, you know, Angus rushing off from school and just bounding onto stage and, and playing. And he's he's this short little guy. I mean, they had the the gorilla outfit before. And, and like <laughs> you were saying, I mean, they come from. Yeah, like he did gorilla. He did a gorilla outfit, Superman, Zorro. And finally settles on the schoolboy uniform. And one interesting thing that that Malcolm said to me, um, I got to interview him. As Malcolm put it, when you when you play the bars and you play these pubs and these these uh, you know uh, far flung outposts in farming towns and whatnot, um, the thing that 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 um, that the the, the uh, you know the patrons recognize. I mean, they're they're working hard, they're playing hard, they're drinking. What they recognize. And what and what goes into their brain and makes sense is, is like a like a boogie woogie pattern, right? So right. Bo- boogie is the idea of sped up blues, right? Um, so ACDC uh, definitely had this this large boogie DNA, which again comes from their love of the Rolling Stones and Chuck Berry, and they started to incorporate that into their own songs. Um, but this is how you kept uh, those guys happy and you didn't get beat up and you did get pennies thrown at you. I don't know if ACDC ever told this story, but I remember Ozzy saying this once and I thought it was hilarious that uh, that people at bars would would like take out take out their lighters and or matches or whatever and heat up pennies and then throw them at you. Wow. So, so you get hot pennies thrown at you. <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, but but uh, Malcolm essentially said the same thing. I mean, people would throw bottles. You know, we, we hear of the famous cages that they had in the American South. You know, you'd play inside a cage so bottles wouldn't hit you and stuff. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, this was, you know, there were demanding crowds and boogie rock is what translated and went into their brains and uh, gave them a good time for that that night. So as Martin says, the band goes through some uh, early iterations and personnel changes. They go from the glam rock to sort of the pub rock straight ahead, uh, R&B style rock and roll. They look for another lead singer. And after, you know, deciding that the current lead singer, the glam uh, phase isn't going to work with the style change, Tell us about the background of the infamous Bon Scott. He becomes a bit of a legendary figure in this band. How did he come on as the lead singer? Um, you know, Bon Scott, actually, same sort of situation where, where you know, born in Scotland, emigrated to Australia. So there was a large emigration to, uh, to Australia. Yeah, so Bon Scott uh, had been around. He's a little older than the guys, a little taller than the guys, a little rougher than the guys. Um, and he had been in uh, Valentine's, so... You know, you listen to his early stuff. So he'd been in Valentine's and then and then naturally what happens is you move from this kind of uh, embarrassing show band pop band. Yeah, it was kind of like a bubblegum kind of boy band almost, wasn't it? He's working as a chauffeur and stuff. I think he drove them around a little bit, I believe. Anyways, he eventually gets into the band uh, and it and it just makes a lot of sense. He's got this great voice. He starts singing rougher he starts using kind of a different voice than he had uh with these other bands so bond takes over the lead vocals in about 73 or 74 
and starts to assist Martin in the songwriting process with the young brothers, Malcolm and Angus. And this formula starts to click. Ron brings to the band is um, everybody loves his his persona. Everybody loves his voice. He's got kind of a nice wordplay. There are a lot of sexual double entendres in the in the lyrics, but they're kind of like good natured, and there's there's no real edge to them. Um, and everybody just thinks he's the coolest guy, right? All the guys want to be like him, and uh, all the girls want to be with him, sort of thing. He's got this persona on stage where he wears these tight jeans, and he's often doesn't have a shirt on. Um, he's bigger than the guys. He's older than the guys. So he so he kind of looks like a tough guy up on stage. He's sinewy, right? So he's kind of like like uh, muscular and thin. Sometimes he's got a bit of a vest on or whatever. He's got long black hair, um, and he's 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 kind of goofy. He's like a little bit of a Dennis the Menace character up there. Yeah, he definitely adds to that uh, sort of pub rock uh, bad boy image. He looks like he's ready for a fight with his shirt off. We go on from. High voltage to dirty deeds done dirt cheap, and that yields a massive hit. starts Martin heavily touring the UK. They're trying to get gig after gig in what the London scene and a variety of other cities to try to obviously break in beyond Australia. Tell us about the UK days. Yeah. So what happens is uh, ACDC gets signed out of the UK to begin with. You know, management gets them some gigs. So all of a sudden they're playing these gigs. Lineups start to uh, form or, uh, you know, around the block sort of thing. They play up and down the UK a fair bit. It's the middle of the punk scene, right? So they look a little bit like punks. They're playing really simple music. And um, some of the ads kind of like portray them as a punk band. Well, they're, they're kind of portrayed a little bit that way. The band pushes back and says, we, we think this punk stuff is really stupid because they're old school. They believe in playing well and recording well. Uh, even though what they're doing is simple and there's that alignment with it. Um, and then we get to the first, you know, simultaneously released, less complicated album, Let There Be Rock Everywhere. So we get uh, another studio album from them, and it, it gets some acclaim as well, and people like it. It's famously Keith Richards says, oh, it's one of my favorite AC, you know, one of my favorite albums. He loved, he loved Power Age. 
And then comes a seminal album that finally has them cracking the U.S. charts, and that album is Highway to Hell. And the formula of Bon Scott singing and writing with guitarist brothers Malcolm and Angus is really starting to fire on all cylinders. But there's another secret additive in that high-octane formula, and that was in the form of a new producer. Their previous producers had been Harry Vanda and their older brother George Young, can you tell us, Martin, a little bit about the background of the new producer who helped them step up their game? Yeah, so so Mutt Lang, he was a musician himself. Uh, he comes in and he's kind of a bit of a song doctor. He will tear songs apart. He will make you do many, many takes and uh, makes the band sound much more professional. Highway to Hell is just action-packed start to finish. Really, really um, accessible. Great hooks. Uh, the big songs on there are uh, are obviously the title track, Highway to Hell. a lot of great songs uh, on that album. Uh, but yeah, a lot of credit to Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang goes on to produce, as you said, Def Leppard. Ultimately, he even marries Shania Twain at one point and produces her, brings her to fame. But just as they achieve their creative pinnacle with Highway to Hell, comes the worst kind of tragedy imaginable. Bon Scott is found dead in 1980. What are the events Martin, surrounding the tragedy of uh, lead singer Bon Scott's death. Yeah, so so ACDC is going to lose Bon Scott. And what happens is, um, you know, typical night on the town for Bon. The drinking starts early in the day. There's a lot of mystery around it, uh, but there's a lot of drinking and going out to clubs. Um, they're in they're in London. Right. Um, and um, what happens later on in the night uh, gets a little more mysterious. They talk about heroin being involved, and uh, I've heard different stories, but the story is that that maybe Bond does it, but he's not really used to heroin, but he's he does it just to be one of the boys and keep the party going deep into the night sort of thing. He ends up falling asleep in a buddy's car and uh, and dies. He, he slumps over. He His head kind of ends up, you know, in an awkward position, you know, down by the gearbox, the console in the middle. And, um, you know, uh, officially, I think the cause of death was as, asphyxiation on his own vomit. So it was, it was more like, uh, and, and then combined with freezing to death, and then people say heroin is involved. So imagine this must have been incredibly difficult for the band. You have a formula working with a lead singer who is very recognizable for his voice, and you have a few massive hits. Imagine the Rolling Stones replacing Mick Jagger or U2 replacing Bono or Led Zeppelin without Robert Plant or any famous band suddenly without their distinctive lead singer who also helped craft their most popular tunes in the catalog to that point. How did the band, Martin, deal with this void? Well, so when they lose Bond, they basically kind of look at each other and say, we, we've got to keep moving forward. We've got a lot of momentum here. You know, they they a lot of different names are thrown around, but uh, but one that even 
Bond had had told them was, uh, you know, if anything ever happens to me, you know, Brian Johnson, what a what a great singer, you know, he he's he's you know, essentially the Bond approved choice. And the reason anybody knew about Brian Johnson is is he's so he's from from the north, he's from Newcastle, and uh, and he had a band called Jordy, um, and they were kind of like an ACDC band. Brian had started, um, you know, a business of his own, tried a few different things. Um, yeah, but wasn't he in the, what, didn't he have an auto parts company, a small company? Like he was out I, of the business kind of thing. Um, so he had a business going and um, and uh, just to, almost as a lark, he uh, he decided to, uh, you know, people say, oh, why don't you try out for this thing? And and he and he gets the job, right? He looks the part. He he's like he's like a short, stocky kind of guy. What is Brian Johnson's personality like? Kind of like an amiable one of the boys personality, uh, kind of even a leader personality, uh, like a Bon Scott. Uh, but his his height is uh, is closer in stature to these other guys, and he's got this uh, you know complete monster of a of a crazy, scary voice uh, to go along with things. So the voice kind of lines up. It's almost even a more extreme voice. Uh, than you had on Bon Scott. So uh, so he fits into the band. Um, you know, they respect him because he's been on records before. Um, they like the the fact that he's he's from the UK, but he's not from London. You know, he's he's kind of like a working class kind of guy. And he comes in and they don't and they don't miss a beat. You have a great story in the book about how he couldn't even afford a ticket to London from Newcastle, but happened to be hired for some commercial work for his voice. And uh, that was how he got the funds to to take the trip. And then he gets the gig. With Bon Scott gone, the band has their back against the wall and how to continue. Remember, Brian Johnson is not a proven commodity. When he's plucked out of his job, his small company, Imagine yourself in that position. In addition, he's also asked to try his hand at songwriting with the Young Brothers. And you could have not asked for a better response from this newly uh, group of songwriters who are thrown together. And the monster hit, well, there were several of them, but this next song shook me all night long. person in that era the anthems from this rocking aussie band were the party anthems at a heck of a lot of parties and played in student parking lots of schools across several nations 
that album was basically the 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 soundtrack to my you know grade eleven or grade twelve or whatever it was both probably uh you know bush parties and drinking and the whole bit I mean it was literally the drinking album of my uh, my last years of high school right? <laughs> um and uh, so so it's an it's an amazing it's amazingly bright up tempo party album so I was a crazy music guy and already at you know started work at 15 16 years old in stereo stores running record departments in my small town and uh, so I was selling stereos and stuff I remember um uh, we used this as a test record right this was you know, down in the basement with the $20,000 stereos. I remember we used it all the time and it blew people away, you know, through these massive systems. But, you know, it, so it had You Shook Me All Night Long, which was, a, which was a big dance song and the girls liked it. So you had this sort of crossover thing happening. But at the same time, you had Hell's Bells, you know, with the big ring in the bell. And that was kind of really ominous and dark. the other songs were were quite heavy on it the production was really good so you have mutt lang producing this album again he gives them a completely different sound than they had on highway to hell and uh i often make the point that that all through the 80s they're essentially touring this album all right so mutt lang is on album number two with the band in terms of back in black and in 1981 comes the album for those about to rock bit of a dry period ensues through the 80s uh, and it doesn't seem to affect them as the back catalog just keeps selling and they sell out tours so back in black continues to sell but they've now had three albums in a row uh, that haven't done that well at all yet they're still kind of a big band Malcolm Young has uh, has a drinking problem at this point he's uh, he's he basically says look I gotta get I gotta get my alcoholism looked at or Malcolm overcomes his drinking problem commits to bringing the band back better than ever and the writing and music come together and resurrect with another hit album called razor's edge which yields the massive hit thunderstruck which comes out and restores the heavyweight title for acdc in the heavy rock arena and if you've been to a sporting event you likely have heard this song revving the crowd up
come up with Thunderstruck, which is essentially uh, their biggest uh, sports stadium anthem. It's either that or for those about to rock, they're both big. Back in Black is, they got a lot of them, right? Back in Black is big too. But basically, uh, it sells a lot more than all of the previous uh, three, three albums, yes. probably combined, actually. Um, right. So yeah, they, they uh, in this, in the, they enter the 90s with this surprise uh, rejuvenation of their career. So now the band, it's funny, they've always maintained their blue collar approach. They love their working class image, which is kind of funny now because they're sort of rock and roll royalty selling up around 150 plus million albums at that point. And they write a tune off that album, Razor's Edge, you know, that has this blue, you know, the blue collar band sneering at the money class with the tune Money Talks. band enters the Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, in 2003 is introduced by Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, calling them the Thunder from Down Under. They continue to tour. Back in Black still sells to this day something in the order of 50-plus million albums. It's up there with the Eagles' greatest hits, Hotel California and Thriller. I mean, these this is a killer album that still sells. The band is finally recognized by the award shows. It receives a Grammy Award in 2009 for its song War Machine. This band seems to have a continual flirtation with tragedy that serves to sort of try to upset the ACDC ship periodically. Tell us what happens to Malcolm Young in 2014. Tragedy strikes again, and then Brian Johnson as well. Yeah, so sadly, Malcolm Young is uh, diagnosed with dementia. Sadly, he dies. Uh, they lose their producer as well, George Young. So Malcolm and George die within close proximity to each other. Uh, and then Brian Johnson, you know, people are noticing that he's not singing so great, uh, but they find out that it, a lot of it has to do with his loss of uh, a hearing loss. So he went through some really pioneering and he, and he worked closely with the, with the company that was working on this technology uh, to, to help his hearing. And he came back. A, apparently a doctor reached out to Brian to say he could help. And the doctor was a fanatical ACDC fan and ultimately uh, performed a procedure on Brian, which helped to restore some of his hearing loss. What's the current status of the band? I know at one point they replaced Brian Johnson because of his hearing issues with Axl Rose, uh, lead singer of Guns N' Roses. He actually toured with them. They did have that dalliance with that Axl Rose, who did a, a, a really good job. Uh, singing for them, but his fame is so outsized that it's almost like a distraction. You know, he's American and all that, so it doesn't feel like they should go that route, and nobody's talking about that route, but basically it looks like they are going to uh, be able to get another record in, and 
and whether they can tour and keep their reputation. So, Martin, we're sort of near the end here. What is the place in history that you think ACDC occupies? Well, I would say their place in history is entirely unique. The problem is, is what they, they came up with was so unique to them and egoless and so simple, simple lyrically, simple musically. It's just kind of like rock and roll riffs slowly moved into a heavy metal space. So essentially, um, their place in history is they've moved through all of these decades as, for all intents and purposes, the only band doing this kind of music. And they got really, really, really big at it. If I'm to add one one other thing in terms of, you know, why they went from uh, the garage to stadium, so to speak, uh, is that, you know, and we didn't really talk about this, but the, the nature of their music is such that when you play it live in a, in a small venue with uh, sound challenges or a big venue with sound challenges, everything is very discernible. You can hear what's going on. So that helped them along, uh, along the way as well um, by just being just sounding really good in any size venue from those small ones at the beginning um, to the big ones later on. Yeah, their simplicity has produced such a successful formula. It's almost like they took Chuck Berry's original riffs and just made them heavier, harder, and just, you know, literally added to that sort of original R&B sound. And man, they kept it and made it their own. So ACDC, part of their formula all the time, all through this thing, was, as you so eloquently put it, harder and heavier Chuck Berry, but you take that switch and, and whip it over to B, and you got actual heavy metal riffs massaged in with the whole thing along the way as well. All right, Martin, we're down to uh, the Martin Popoff picks, three picks of lesser-known ACDC tunes. We all know the anthem arena songs that everyone sings in the stadiums. Yeah, so I had I picked for the early days What's Next to the Moon. So this one's just, like I say, a bit of a southern rocky sort of song. Song pick number two. Song pick number two is Bedlam in Belgium. And Bedlam in Belgium is just the story of some riot that that, that kicked off uh, when they were in Belgium. Uh, but it's just a good rocking song that represents uh, how great that Flick of the Switch album is. Okay, so for now, my pick for number three, so the later years, uh, Ball Breaker. What I like about this song is that it's fairly heavy, but as it picks up, it gets really heavy and snarly. You know, it's interesting. The, the, the two bookend uh, albums, you've got Mutt Lang as the producer of one, but you've got two lead singers on each of the bigger albums, right? The Highway to Hell and Back in Black. That's an interesting uh, dichotomy. Those are kind of a couple interesting starting points for those who don't know ACDC. That's a great point, Dave. That's a really excellent point. There you have it. 
Martin Popoff, who uh, wrote this incredible book, which I urge everyone to pick up. We'll have uh, links at our site to the book. Thank you so much for being on Garage to Stadiums today. Thank you, Dave. A lot of fun. And some closing notes on ACDC. On today's episode, we discussed the phenomenal sales of the album Back in Black from 1980. Worldwide, it has sold 50 plus million albums and still sells at enormous rates today. Go to our website, garagetostadiums.com, if you want to hear the Garage to Stadiums official playlist of ACDC and guest Martin Popoff's three deep cuts. While at our website, under the show notes for the ACDC episode, we'll have some bonus content, including clips of that 2003 Hall of Fame induction ceremony of ACDC and their performance that night with Steven Tyler of Aerosmith performing You Shook Me All Night Long. You can quiz your friends' musical knowledge as we've included the surprising list of bands that have covered ACDC songs over the years, from rock to country artists. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed the Garage to Stadium story of ACDC. Special thanks to our guest, Martin Popoff, author of ACDC at 50, and our producers, Reese Waters and Sarah McClellan. You've been listening to Garage to Stadiums, another Blast Furnace Labs production. I'm Dave Anthony. Join us again for another Garage to Stadium story. This has been a Podstarter production. production.